Should we just start? We're just going to start. In a few minutes, or a minute. 
All right. Ready, Kaylee?
You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to gather with you this morning as we kick off Holy Week, the week leading up to Easter Sunday, and it's just a joy to come together on like one of the first days that actually feels like spring, um, and just yeah, worship God together as we just prepare our heart and our mind for this Easter season. If you're, you're new or you're visiting, my name is Tim, I'm one of the pastors here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church, and we are, are glad that you're here joining with us this morning as we worship. And this week of Easter, it's all about making the words we just sang true, right? Because of what happens in this holy week, this Easter week, that God promised it truly are, yes and amen. And so we just get to come together now and celebrate that, that goodness. A uh, couple of announcements to make you aware of. Today is the, the second Sunday of the month. We will take communion together. Um, at the end of our service, and hopefully you grabbed a communion cup on your way in. If not, you can um, sneak out during the service, and there's some on the on the table out in the foyer that you can grab um, for taking communion. But we will do that at the end of our service. Along with that, as part of our communion Sunday, we take a, a special benevolence offering that we use to meet needs in our community. Um, and so at the door on your way out, there will be someone holding a plate that plate will be for the, the special benevolence offering that goes towards meeting needs in our community. Um, regular gift, regular tithes and offering can go in the boxes on the back wall. Just a couple of announcements to bring um, to your attention. One, so this Friday, Good Friday, we will, we will gather together at 6 p.m. for a, a Good Friday service as we reflect on and remember what Jesus endured and what Jesus accomplished on the cross on our behalf. So we invite you to be with us for that at 6 p.m. this Friday. And then on Sunday, we will, we will gather together. We will celebrate the resurrection. And as part of that celebration following the service, we will have an Easter brunch. So we invite you to be part of that. That will take the place of, there will be no Sunday school or cross training that morning. We'll have the brunch immediately after the worship service. We are asking you an RFVP for that if you plan to be here, just so we have an idea of how many people will be here. Um, you can do that um, by either calling the church or emailing um, the email address that's on the back of your bulletin. I also want to invite up Glenn Stouffer this morning. He's going to give us a few um, announcements regarding um, his work on the nomination committee. Thank you, Tim. Uh, one of the responsibilities of the nominating committee is to apprise the congregation of current or upcoming vacancies in various church offices and committees. So, to that end, um, I want to let you know that we have some vac vacancies in the following four areas. Deacons, deaconesses, worship committee chair, and the nominating committee itself. Uh, we hope to vote on these on vote-in candidates to fill in some of these vacancies at the upcoming annual meeting. A second responsibility of the nominating committee is to solicit suggestions from the congregation for qualified candidates to fill these vacancies. So I'm asking you, if specific names come to mind, even if it's your own name, please contact one of us on the nominating committee or someone in the church board or even the church office. 
Uh, we posted position descriptions and responsibilities on the display board in the foyer, I think. Oh, Melissa put the bylaws up. But they're in there. The descriptions are in there. So um, please consider these positions in light of the uh, biblical qualifications listed in 1 Timothy and 1 Titus, or Titus 1, 1 Timothy 1, Titus 1, and Galatians 5. And those references are in there as well. We'll take your suggestions. We'll prayerfully consider them. We'll interview candidates uh, with regards to willingness, availability, and qualification. And then we make recommendations to the board. Uh, we're specifically soliciting nominations now, but please feel free to bring suggestions forward at any time. Lastly, I want to remind everyone that membership in this Three Lakes E-Free Church body is a prerequisite for serving in many of these church offices and committees. If you are a follower of Christ and you call this your church home, but you're not a member, I urge you to seriously and prayerfully consider becoming a member. You know, if you're not a citizen of your country, you can't serve in your state legislature, and neither can you help in electing your representative. And likewise, if you're not a member in your local church body, then you don't really have a voice in the governance of that church, either in office or in voting people into office. If you do feel a nudge to become a member, or if you already know in your heart that it is time already to embrace the deeper commitment and responsibility and accountability that comes with membership, then I urge you to contact Pastor Tim. I believe he's planning to hold a membership class in early May, um, just a few weeks away. Thank you. Thank you, Glenn. As he said, we're going to have a membership class actually May 14th um, from 9 a.m. to noon. It's a Saturday. If you are interested in that, I would encourage you and invite you to um, contact me. We'll also send out an email and chant the RFP that way. But if you are interested in membership, I would encourage you to, to reach out. Um, I just want to say quickly that the work of the nominating committee is, like, I'm so thankful for them. Right? There, are, there are some pastors who delight in having their finger in like every nook and crevice of the church. Like, I am not that pastor. And so the work the nominating committee does and the work that our leaders do to take care of certain things that are not my forte, I'm just incredibly thankful for. So I just encourage you, if you are um, approached about serving, or if you feel just led to serve in some way, to, to consider that strongly, because those kind of volunteers are what make our church work and function most effectively. And I'm just so thankful for the leaders we do have and whoever God will raise up moving forward. So with that in mind, I want to pray now for that whole nominating process and along with just our church as a whole as we continue our time of worship. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we do thank you for the work you do in through this church because of the people you have gathered here together in this place and the way you've raised up leaders to lead us and guide us and help us at the church to fulfill the calling you've given us to to reach people with the gospel and to grow to be like Christ and to serve others. And we thank you for the people you have raised up to lead us in fulfilling that mission. And do pray now for the nominating committee that they prayerfully consider how 
to fill the vacancies we have, that you would give them insight, you give them wisdom in that process. And I pray for people here who may be well-equipped, may be able to fulfill some of those vacancies well, but maybe feel some hesitancy that you would just be at work to be at work in the heart of the people you would have to lead to prompt them and to encourage them to say, yes, if asked. Or to yeah, bring to light names that would effectively fill those positions. Father, we, we come now and we want to spend the next minutes worshiping you through, through song as we reflect on and think about all that you did for us between Palm Sunday and Easter. This week is the central week of our faith, and yet as life gets busy and things get chaotic, it can be easy to take for granted day by day throughout the year. With this week as we lead up to Easter, would it serve to quiet our minds and to focus our hearts and minds on all that you did done for us in Jesus. And would we be blown away? Would we be amazed? Would we be utterly astounded by the goodness and your graciousness to us in sending Jesus to die on a cross on our behalf and to be raised again from the dead? God would what Jesus did for us, would it never become old, would it never become stale, would it constantly move us to worship? Would we worship you now in light of that? Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to ask you to stand as we worship a bit this morning and celebrate. Happy Palm Sunday. Celebrate Hosanna.
John, John 12, 12. The next day, the crowd, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, and as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd was with him, and when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees said one to another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This morning I was listening to a song by Jars of Clay. Flashback to the 90s, right? Um... There's a line in it that says, it seems so easy to call him Savior, not close enough to call him God. I was thinking about the, the names that we use to talk about Jesus. And this day he was Hosanna. He was coming in triumphant into the city and he was Hosanna. And not shortly afterward, he, people were saying things of hate to him. So this, this week is just like a week of contradiction. We just sang about Hosanna and now we're going to sing it a little bit differently just kind of reflect on where this week is taking us as we enter into Easter.
Father, we know this, that life in this broken and fallen world is full of challenges and it's hard at times, and yet we just think that life is worth living, these hardships are worth enduring because Jesus lives, and because Jesus lives, we have an eternal hope of a future when all things are made right and there is no more pain and suffering and brokenness. We thank you, we praise you for that promise that is found in Jesus. That life is worth living because he lives. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. May I be seated. So the, the quietest room in the world is found on Microsoft's campus in, in Redmond, Washington. It looks like this. I think we have a picture of it. Right? It looks like this, and it's called an anechoic chamber, which means like basically no echo. Anechoic. No echo. Right? And the noise level in that room has been measured at negative 20.3 decimals, right? which means it's 20.3 decimals below the threshold for human hearing. Like it is silent. Right? You step into that room and it's an utterly silent experience. Right? And there are there are times when, like especially coming from a house with four kids, that stepping into that room sounds awfully pleasant. Right? So just to be able to step into a room and have silence has its appeal. Right? But it turns out Stepping into that room might not be quite as appealing as it sounds. No pun intended. Like many people who go into this room quickly start to feel a sense of unease. Some of them experience dizziness, because apparently your brain uses the sounds around you to help you orient like what is up and what is down. Others find it unsettling because in that extreme quiet, you can hear your own heartbeat, you become very aware of how loud you swallow. Some people experience like a near deafening ringing in their ears. Even in that room, if you're there long enough, you can hear your bones grinding against one another as you move. It's that quiet. One of the scientists who worked at the Microsoft anechoic chamber puts it this way. He says, most people find the absence of sound deafening. They feel a sense of fullness in the ears or some ringing. Very faint sounds become clearly audible because the ambient noise is exceptionally low. When you turn your head, you can hear that motion. You can hear yourself breathing and it sounds somewhat loud. So the silence that can be found in that room is profoundly unsettling. If you want to find out for yourself what it's like to step into one of these rooms, there's, a, there's an anechoic chamber at Orfield Laboratories in, in Minneapolis. That, that one held the record for the quietest room in the world before this one in Washington was built. And it's, it's open to the public. You can sign up for a tour right, and you can go tour it. Like it's, should be worth like $160 per person for the tour. And if you want to, you can actually sign up and like reserve a block to try to break the record for longest time in there, but it's like 
$600 an hour to do that. So like, if you've if you're got the money to blow and you want them silence, they're your, they're your way. Right. Right. But just, just be warned, it's one of the Orfield, uh, the Orfield laboratories that have a feature in a Smithsonian article, but it said this. The article said, the Earth, Earth's quietest place will drive you crazy in 45 minutes. And in that article, it's reported that the longest anyone lasted in one of these chambers to 45 minutes. Now, that was written in 2013, and people have lasted longer. Like, the current record at Orfield Laboratories is two hours. But it still drives some of this idea that to sit in that kind of silence for that long can be profoundly unsettling. And as we come in our, our current sermon series, The Road to the Resurrection, if we come to the Saturday before the resurrection, and on that Saturday we get a kind of profound silence. In these, in these weeks before Easter, in the sermon series, we've been kind of walking through each of the days leading up to Easter. Like the two weeks ago we looked at the Thursday before Easter and the Last Supper, and then last week we looked at the Friday before the resurrection. And in both of those sermons, I commented on how much is happening each day. And it's hard to like, pick what to actually preach on. On Thursday, you have like, Jesus washing the disciples' feet, and the Last Supper, and Jesus praying in Gethsemane, and Jesus predicting Judas's betrayal. And on Friday, there's Jesus' arrest, and Jesus' trial before the Jewish leaders, and Jesus' trial before Pilate, and Jesus carrying his cross to Golgotha, and of course, the crucifixion and death of Jesus itself. Thursday and Friday are non-stop action, event after event after event. But then we come to the Saturday before the resurrection. And there's the sudden, deafening silence. Jesus is in the grave. The Sabbath, so Jesus' followers are prevented by Sabbath law from doing much of anything. In fact, like, the Bible only tells us like, one definitive event that happens on the Saturday between the crucifixion and Easter. And that event is found in Matthew 27, verses 62 through 66. We read this. The next day, the one after preparation, they, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. The last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, to the tomb, go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and they made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. So this passage is an important one for like, having reasons to believe, like firm conviction for believing the truth of Christianity. Because like, the truth of Christianity all hinges on one fundamental question, which is, like, did Jesus really rise from the grave? Paul says, like, if, Christ had, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sin. 
And another place that Paul lays out the truths that are what he called of first importance, he says this, I passed on, I, for what I received, I passed on to you with the first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So this resurrection of Jesus is it's fundamental for Paul. It's of first importance. Without it, our faith is futile. So, if someone could prove that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, right, then the central claim of Christianity is refuted. And this passage shows that the Pilate and the Pharisees, they were on guard against any effort to falsely claim that Jesus rose from the dead. As Christianity kind of begins to grow and spread, one of the questions that the, the opponent of Christianity must answer is, if Jesus is not raised, then where is the body? That should be a fairly easy question to answer. Right? Dead bodies don't typically move. And the passage tells us that the answer can't be, right, the disciples stole the body. Because they were, it, was, it was under guard. For more than 300 years after Jesus' death, Christianity is continually persecuted and outlawed by powerful authorities. It's outlawed by people who wanted nothing more than to prove that Christianity was a fraud. And yet there's no record anywhere that I'm aware of of anyone ever standing up and saying, look, look, here's the body. He wasn't actually resurrected. And they couldn't do that because there was no body. It couldn't have been stolen because it was guarded. So this, this passage is helpful in that, in that regard. But it's the only passage in the entire Bible that tells us anything definitively about what was going on on the Saturday between the crucifixion and the resurrection. Like the rest, just silence. Just doesn't that seem odd that we'd have no record of what took place on that Saturday? And because so little is said about what happened on that Saturday, it can sometimes lead to some speculation about what happened. Especially when it comes to the question like, where did Jesus spend Saturday? Of course, his, his body was in the tomb, but what about his spirit, or his soul? I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, because, like, well, it's complicated, um, and I don't really think it changes how we live our lives. But I do want to touch on it briefly, just because if I don't, some of you will wonder why I avoided it. And so, like, if you want to ask more questions about this, I'm just going to touch on it briefly now. If you want to ask more questions about it, I would invite you to come to Cross Training Find the Service. We'll meet in here starting at 1045, and you can ask all your questions I don't have answers to then. But quickly, and very broadly speaking, there are two, kind of two main ideas about where Jesus spends, where Jesus' spirit spends Saturday. One is in heaven. As he's crucified, one of the men being crucified next to him is repentant, and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. To which Jesus replies, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The implication seemingly being, when they died, both Jesus and this repentant thief's souls would go immediately to paradise. 
to heaven. That seems fairly clear. But then the Apostles' Creed, which I'm willing to bet 95% of you in this room have, have said numerous times in your life, it says this, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Then what happened? He went to paradise? Not according to the creed. The creed says he descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. So that's option two for where Jesus spent his Saturday. In, in hell. If you were to ask me what my favorite Bible verse was, or like my favorite my life verse, if it's a phrase I don't particularly like, but you know people use it. Or if you were to ask me that, it would, the response you get would depend on my mood like that day a little bit, right? Like if I was in a a mood, if I just had a little something bothering me, like I'd be liable to like go on a little bit of a a rant, a little bit of a, a tangent about how like the whole Bible is important. Right? I say something like, right, the God of the universe like, saw fit to inspire thirty one thousand one hundred two verses. And you want me to pick one? Right? So I'll just give you a little sarcastic reply that way. Right? But more than likely, like assuming I wasn't in some kind of bad mood that day, if you were to ask me that question, I would just say 1 Peter 3.18, which says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. I I love that verse. It's a great verse. It's a beautiful summary of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. He suffered for sins. He, the righteous one, suffered for us, the unrighteous in order to bring us to God. I love that verse. There's just one small little problem with it. One little inconvenience. Which is that like 1 Peter 3.18 doesn't end with a period. It ends with a comma. So what I just read, that 1 Peter 3.18, it, it stops in the middle of a thought. And the reason that's so inconvenient is that the rest of that thought is, shall we say, challenging. So here's the full sentence. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. There's the nice good part. Here's the rest. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. What does that mean? If you know, talk to me, because I don't know. So the reason I I mentioned these verses that those verses, the one special one about Noah and Jesus going and proclaiming to the spirits in prison, is one of the places that the writers of the Apostles' Creed got this notion that Jesus descended into hell. We can talk about 
more about what that means and all the implications during cross-training. In fact, I have a, a little video on a show during cross-training that helps on both understanding that First Peter passage and also just in how to tackle hard passages in general. I kind of encourage you to come and be a part of that discussion. But for right now, let me just say this. I don't think that First Peter passage means that Jesus went to hell between the cross and the resurrection. The, the generally good policy, when you come across two Bible passages that seem to come in conflict with each other, the good policy typically to start with the clearer verse and then work from there. If the Bible really is like the inspired word of God, which I believe it is, and if God is truth and His word is truth, then there are no contradictions in His word. So when we come across what at first appears like a contradiction, we should start with the clearer passage and understand the less clear passage in light of the clearer one. And in this case, right, Jesus saying to the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise, is much clearer and simpler than whatever is going on with Noah in First Peter. Right, so I believe right, that Jesus spends the Saturday between the cross and the resurrection in heaven, in paradise. And when it comes to thinking about the Saturday between the cross and the resurrection, like there is, there's value in knowing that the tomb was guarded. There's value in thinking about what Jesus was doing on that Saturday. But I thought really thinking about like what this Saturday between the cross and the resurrection means for us. Neither of those were where I wanted to spend the bulk of our time this morning. Instead, in the rest of our time together, I want to look at just one verse. In fact, it's a verse that, that takes place after the resurrection, and I'll explain why in a minute. But first, let's read the verse. So, John 20, verse 19 says this. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them. The reason I want to kind of focus in on this verse, even though it takes place on Sunday, is I think it's a pretty safe assumption that the disciples spent Saturday in a very similar manner. Right? That they were together, locked in a room, afraid and confused. Andreas Kostenberger puts it this way. He said, the, disciple, the disciples are reeling from the shock of the previous day's rapid events. They had devoted their lives to following a person who had been brutally and shamefully executed as a criminal. Their hopes for the establishment of God's messianic kingdom lie shattered like so many pieces of broken pottery. They are likely sleep-deprived and terrified of pursuit and persecution by the Jewish leaders, with their leader executed for fomenting political sedition. They have good reason to be afraid. So just try for a second to put yourself in the disciples' shoes on that Saturday. They don't know the resurrection is coming. Jesus gave them enough clues. They probably should have, but they don't. And we know this because like, after the resurrection, Jesus appears to a group of women 
And he tells them to go tell the disciples that Jesus has risen from the dead. Right? So these women go and they tell the disciples. And Luke 24, 11 tells us, the disciples did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. So if they had been expecting the resurrection, they would have embraced that news, but instead they didn't believe the women. Right? So they, they were not expecting the resurrection on this Saturday. And if they didn't believe the resurrection was coming, they weren't expecting it. Just imagine what that day must have been like for them. Right? The, man, the man they've been following for the last three years has just been killed for political sedition. Right, for fomenting revolution. Like if you look at history, right, the closest followers of revolutionaries don't usually get off scot-free. Right? So the logical next step for the disciples is, right, they're going to come for us. So they're scared for their lives. Beyond that, right, they've given their life to following someone who the religious authorities have deemed a heretic and a blasphemer. It was just been killed, right? And they must have thought, like, surely if Jesus had really been the Messiah, God would not have let that happen. Right? So not only are they concerned for their physical safety, they must also be worried about their, their eternal security and their, their standing in Jewish culture for having followed what appears to be at the moment a false Messiah. So they're, they're scared for their physical safety. They're scared for their relational community safety. And on top of all that, they're mourning the death of one of their best friends. Like any one of those things, in and of themselves, would be plenty of cause for fear and mourning and despair. And they have all three going on at once. So who can, who can blame them for huddling together with the doors locked in fear as they seek to comfort and strengthen one another? So it seems likely that this is how the disciples spent their Saturday. They were together with the doors locked. They were afraid. They were exhausted. Because of the events of the last few days, they were discouraged. They were confused. They were powerless to do anything about it. Right? So after all the commotion of, of the Passover and the Last Supper and Jesus' arrest and his trial and his crucifixion, they suddenly stop and they settle into this kind of unsettling silence. They just sit in their pain and their grief on that Saturday. The question then becomes, for us, like, what do we do with, with this? There's no, there's no command in John 20, 19. So as we reflect on the disciples' experience of that Saturday, like, how should we respond? And I think, like, what, what the disciples' experience on Saturday does for us, that teaches us, right? That the silence of Saturday reminds us that, that sorrow precedes resurrection. We reflect on the disciples' time 
between the cross and the resurrection. It reminds us that we, we also live in between times. We too live waiting for a resurrection. And just as the disciples, they spent their time in hardship and turmoil, like we shouldn't be surprised if our time waiting for the next resurrection is also marked by times of sorrow and hardship and mourning. But the advantage that we have over the disciples is that we know that the next resurrection is coming. The New Testament makes it abundantly clear. Like our great hope, the, the hope that the Bible points us to, is not just that we will spend eternity in some kind of disembodied spirit in heaven. It's, it's far more than that. Right? Our great hope is that we will experience a resurrection like Jesus. And we will spend eternity with real, physical, tangible bodies in a real, physical, tangible new earth. 1 Corinthians 15.20, Paul writes, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So the first fruits, right? they're, the, they're the crops that are harvested first in a season. Right? They're literally the first fruits of the harvest. But they also serve as a sign that more of the same is to come. And that's true of Jesus and His resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit. It's a sign that we too will be resurrected. I love the way Paul puts it in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. And in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul writes, We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to Himself. That's the great hope that the Bible offers. The great hope of our Faith, that we will be raised like Jesus, and we will have glorious resurrection bodies that do not get sick, that do not wear out, that do not die. Like, that's the resurrection we wait for. That's the great hope we wait for. Just as the world unknowingly waited for Jesus' resurrection on that Saturday between the crucifixion and the resurrection. But just as the disciples waited in sorrow, and in grief, and in fear. The same is true for us. Our, our waiting for that glorious resurrection is not always easy. Like, and even knowing the resurrection is coming doesn't take away the grief and the pain and the sorrow in this life. Life is still hard, even knowing that that resurrection is coming. But what the... But what knowing it's coming does enable us to do is that it enables us to rejoice even in the midst of our sorrows. To be, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And I wonder, like, have you ever considered 
Like, why this Saturday between the crucifixion and the resurrection exists? Why is it there? Like, why have Saturday at all? Like, why did God have the disciples endure that Saturday? Why the third day? Why not just have him raised on that Saturday? It's a question I never really considered before I started writing this sermon and reading. But like, why? Why is this Saturday of silence and of pain and of grief, why is it there? Why didn't God raise Jesus sooner? Like maybe you would say, well, Saturday's the Sabbath. But if there's one thing Jesus enjoyed, it was upsetting Sabbath norms and helping people understand that the Sabbath was about the rest they could find in Him. Like surely nothing would have done that more effectively than for Jesus to rise on Saturday. So why? Why is that Saturday there? Why do we have this day of silence and mourning and grief? Max Lucado is talking about this and he answers it far better than I could. I'm just going to read you his word. He says this. Jesus knew God would not leave him alone in the grave. You need to know God will not leave you alone with your struggles. His silence is not his absence. Inactivity is is never apathy. Saturdays have their purpose. They let us feel the full force of God's strength. Had God raised Jesus 15 minutes after the death of His Son, would we have appreciated the act? Were He to solve your problems the second they appear, would you appreciate His strength? Some of you, many of you maybe, are are walking through hard, dark seasons right now. If you're not right now, you will at some point. A season that leaves you longing for Jesus to return. A season that leaves you asking God, like, why? Maybe you're right now like the disciple. Afraid and discouraged. Confused. Yet God has a purpose for Saturday. God has a purpose for our pain and our struggles and our hardships and our mourning. Our, our pain, our struggles, our mourning, they guarantee that when God does show up, and He will, when God shows up and He makes all things new, all things right, we will feel the full force of His strength when He does it. We won't take His power for granted when He makes all things right. Instead, we'll be blown away by His power and His goodness. That's what the, the Saturday between the crucifixion and the cross reminds us of. Jesus has already done the work on the cross for us to be forgiven, for all things to be made right. 
But now we wait for God to bring it to completion. As we wait, because of the cross, we're able to wait patiently and confidently. James, who was one of the disciples who endured that Saturday, he writes this. He says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and the spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. We can wait patiently. We can wait in hope because we know that the resurrection is coming. The Lord's coming is near. Like That's our hope. That's our good news. But it's only good news if you've trusted and believed in Jesus. It's only good news if you have had Jesus' work on the cross, that His dying to forgive sins. If you've had it applied to you because you've placed your faith in Him. If you're here and you've not placed your faith in Him. then this is not good news for you. This is not a message of hope. It's only because of the work of Jesus and our faith in Him, that this is good news. If you've not trusted Jesus, I just invite you and encourage you to do that. And if you are here, and you have trusted Jesus, I just invite you to reflect on all Jesus did on the cross and in His resurrection, and let it give you hope in the midst of hard times. That Jesus' resurrection it's not just a one-time deal. But that His resurrection is the first fruit that point forward to our glorious resurrection when all things will be made right. We need to remind ourselves of all that Jesus did for us in, in taking communion together. In the first week of this sermon series, when we talked about the Thursday, we talked about Passover, we looked at how Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. If you think back to that sermon, you may remember we talked about how Jesus in the Lord's Supper did two things. Right? He, he pointed our minds in two directions. He pointed our minds back, causing us to remember all that He did on the cross. But He also points our minds forward to the final resurrection when we will sit down with Jesus at another meal, right? the marriage supper of the Lamb. And at this supper, this final meal, there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrow. Jesus will have made all things right. We will sit down to a meal that is all about celebration and worshiping God. So it seems appropriate. Like on, on this day as we reflect on the Saturday between the crucifixion and the resurrection, to take the meal that reminds us to look in both directions. To look back at what he's accomplished and look forward to what he is yet to do. So I just want to give us a few minutes to do that now. Give us a few minutes to sit and reflect. To be thankful to Jesus for all that he did for us on the cross. But also to look ahead with hope 
to the day when we will sit down with Jesus in glory at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And to let that glorious future hope encourage us and strengthen us in the midst of life's trials. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus. And in these next few moments of quiet, would you guard, guide our minds to remember all that Jesus has done for us and to look forward with hope to the day when we will sit down with Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb and we will have all pain and all suffering behind us. So God, would you just work in our hearts and minds now these moments of quiet to Remind us and encourage us and strengthen us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. night he was betrayed took bread when he had given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me partake
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake. Father, we thank you for this tangible reminder of the price that Jesus paid so that our sins can be forgiven. Jesus says, body was broken, that his blood poured out. That he died on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven. We praise you as all that the story doesn't end there, that Jesus didn't stay dead, that the grave could not hold him, that he rose. And his resurrection is the first fruits that remind us and promise us that we will too one day be resurrected with glorious bodies that experience no pain, no suffering, no more death. God, would you help us if we walk through this week leading up to Easter to be reminded of all Jesus did and to look forward to that glorious future. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. But you, you go from here. Would you go encouraged and strengthened by the hope that another resurrection is coming. There is coming a day when we will live with resurrected, glorified bodies with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. You are dismissed.